Ephesians chapter 4. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. It marks a shift in the Apostle Paul's teaching out of the book of Ephesians. As you know, chapter 1 of Ephesians is on the riches of our salvation. Chapter 2 is on the reason for our salvation. Chapter 3 is on the relationship and revelation of our salvation. That is all what we would refer to as the indicative. Great statements of faith. Great statements of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Great statements on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great statements on the church and the mystery come in the person of Jesus, bringing now together both Jew and Gentile under one family, under one people, and that's the church of the living God. But now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we see the responsibility of our salvation the responsibility of our salvation. And this moves us from the indicative to the imperative. We move from amazing statements of the Christian faith, of Christian doctrine, of the Christian gospel contained in Jesus Christ to now the imperatives that belong to his people. We go from the great exaltation of God to now the command for every believer. And so Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 this morning on the theme of the worthy walk. Let's look at these verses together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May the Lord Jesus add his blessing to the reading of his word. In this great fourth chapter, we see this this wonderful theme of walking worthy of the gospel. As Jerry likes to say here from time to time, if we're on our way to heaven, we ought to live like it, right? If we claim to be Christians, Christians, we ought to live like it. We see this in the world even when a person joins an organization, he obligates himself to live and act in accordance with the standards of that particular organization. He accepts its aims, objective standards as his own. A citizen even of this earth, a citizen of the United States, a citizen locally here in the state of Florida is obligated to abide by the laws of that country and the laws of that state. An employee is obligated to work according to the rules and standards and purposes of the corporation and members of service clubs even obligate themselves to promote the goals of the club and to abide by its standards. So when someone joins an athletic team, he's obligated to play as the coach orders and according to the rules of the sport. 
In other words, the football must be inflated to prescribed levels, right? Human society could not operate with such, without such obligation. Now, sometimes in the church, such loyalties to standards and fear of ostracism do not operate with the same force. Too many Christians in the body of Christ are glad to have their spiritual security, blessings, and promises of the gospel, but have too little sense of responsibility in conforming to its standards and obeying its commands. At one time, the most famous verse in all of Scripture was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But in our generation, in a postmodern society, the most famous verse now, arguably, within any Christian denomination or church is now Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. If you dare to say, here's the standard of God's word, here's the standard of the gospel, here's the standard of the righteousness and character and holiness of God, we must live according to it. The first thing out of someone's mouth might be, who are you to judge me? So in the first three chapters, again, of Ephesians, Paul has set forth the believer's position with all the blessings and honor and privileges that belong to a child of God. However, in chapters 4, 5, and 6 here, he gives us the obligations, the duty, the requirements of being his child. We might say it this way, the evidence, the fruit of real salvation. It can be boiled down to one word, obedience. In order to live out salvation in accordance with the Father's will and to his glory. The first three chapters set forth the truth of the believer's identity in Christ. And the last three call for the godly responses to Christ. So when we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we became then citizens of the kingdom and members of his body, his family. And along with those blessings and privileges, we also received a standard. It is not a list of do's and don'ts. It is Jesus Christ himself. The Lord expects, expects us to act as new persons, new creations. For we have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If any man is in Jesus, he's a new creation. All the old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. It's a reasonable expectation, isn't it? If we are new creations, we're going to have a new life, a new walk. Now, is it possible for Christians to stumble? Yes. Is it possible to backslide? Yes. Is it possible to slip into patterns of sin? Yes. Second Peter 1 tells us that, that we could almost emulate a non-Christian by when he says, if you fail to make your calling and election sure, you will be unfruitful, unproductive. You will take on aspects of the former life, even though you may be regenerated. So, right doctrine leads to right living. 
It's impossible to live faithfully the Christian life without knowing the Scriptures. God's Word, doctrine, it simply means the healthy teaching, says there's no way that even the most sincere believer can live a life pleasing to God without knowing who God is and what He expects for our life. So biblical theology leads the Christian to then live in biblical doxology. We go to the depths of Scripture and out of that, hide God's Word in our hearts so that we would not sin against Him. Any kind of revival, any kind of reformation, any kind of renewal within a church, within a nation, does not come from better programs, better buildings, better organizational structure, educational methods, or anything else that would be deemed as external. It must, beloved, come, first of all, through the renewing of the mind by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul, later in this wonderful book of Ephesians, says that we are to be renewed in Ephesians 4 verses 23 and 24 to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and we are to put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth isn't that a great verse this is the worthy walk I want to repeat it again Ephesians 4 23 and 24 we are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth there's the great call to sanctification justification all of grace monergistic singularly of grace we were dead in sin now we've been made alive to Christ we were by nature children of wrath now we are called the children of God sons of God under the control of our lustful minds and passions and under the control of Satan himself who orchestrates as prince of power of the air rebellion and continued enmity against God but now that we are born again, our desire is to please him who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. As Peter says, be ye holy, for I am holy. This is our great hope in the gospel. New creations, new people in Jesus Christ. So this morning, the worthy walk, we're just going to look at three aspects of this wonderful worthy walk three things that tell us about this new walk in Jesus Christ we're gonna see the command of the worthy walk we're gonna see the characteristics of the worthy walk and then we're gonna see the cause of the worthy walk the command the characteristics and the cause let's look here together first of all the the call or the command of the worthy walk let's look at verse 1 here together the Apostle Paul says, therefore, and that connects the previous three chapters, a prisoner for the Lord. Now, as we've talked about this in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul begins that same way. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, with this caveat, on behalf of you Gentiles, 
The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, as to found blameless according to the law, but yet he was the greatest persecutor of the church. Now, as a born-again man, arrested by God in his grace through the person of the resurrected Christ on that road to Damascus, he now would be the greatest pastor of the church. But yet the one who was giving unrelenting persecution became a prisoner for the Lord. And he did this on behalf of the Gentiles to take them the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what he means here in chapter 4. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He's re-engaging these believers in Ephesus to saying here that God is sovereign even over my imprisonment. He did this as a way to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. But he says in verse 1, the command, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, this is a wonderful word in the Greek for walk. It's in the, it's in the imperative. It's a command. It's peripateo. And this word here simply means to line up behind Christ and master the master's life, literally to walk as he walked. If someone wants to know what it means to be a faithful Christian of the Lord Jesus Christ, it means to follow him, to follow Jesus, to live in obedience to him. Through the agency of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Word of God, we are daily to keep step with Christ. Ordinary people living in daily obedience, doing good things unto him and his glory by his grace that prove the evidence of a truly saved man or woman. It is the fruit, not the root of the Christian life. We do not earn our salvation, but we walk now in a manner worthy of the calling. Notice that phrase. We've been called by God in Christ, regenerated through the Holy Spirit, so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. This is in an uh, imperative in the Greek, and it simply means to keep step with Christ. It means all the habits of our lives. It is present tense. This is the daily habitual life of anybody in the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which you've been called. Now, you might say, Steve, is he calling for perfection? No, no one in this life can live to perfection. Romans chapter 7, even the Apostle Paul says, I wouldn't know and I was a covetous man unless the law of God said I'm covetous. And he says, I'm a wretched man. In 1 Timothy 1, he considered himself as he grew in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief of sinners. He even goes back to Romans 7 and says, the very thing I long to do, I don't do. And the thing that I don't want to do, I do. There's the battle. We are new creations incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. New under Christ. Positionally home with him. The already but not yet. But yet we are making our way through this earth. As the old pastor one time said many decades ago, we've died once to the penalty of sin, that's salvation. We die daily to the power of sin, that's sanctification. And one day we're even going to be free from the presence of sin, that's glorification. Now we can all 
say amen and praise the Lord for that one great day when we're home with Him. But in the meantime, there's a struggle. We battle sin in our life in thought, word, or deed every day. None of us have arrived to the place of sinlessness. Positionally, we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ, Ephesians 2.6. But yet, practically, we are here every day working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation, all of grace. As Jerry prayed this morning, Lord, may we realize every day that we can do nothing apart from you. John 15, 5, apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And so therefore, even in sanctification, we are wholly relied upon the grace and strength and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in salvation, it's monergistic, solely all of grace. We're dead in trespasses and sin. He must cause us to be born again, to be resurrected, to be given new birth in Christ Jesus, to be justified, declared not guilty before the sovereign eternal bench of a holy God. That only happens by grace through faith, and even that's the gift of God unto salvation. However, in sanctification, it is synergistic. It is meaning we have our part to do as well. New creations, now we long to please God. Now we long to obey Him. There is, I believe, a dangerous movement of free grace going on in the church today, thinking that simply we're saved by grace, we're only sanctified by grace, and we're glorified only by grace. Now, there's truth to that, but in sanctification, we have work to do. Otherwise, all the commands in the New Testament, not absent of God's grace, leaning upon God's grace, strengthened and empowered by God's grace, But the Lord will not live the Christian life for you. However, he will chasten you if you are living in abject, willful, perpetual, patternistic, habitual disobedience against him. Are we understanding that? Are you tracking with me this morning? This is a very important part of the Christian life. People want to say, no, it's simply God who sanctifies. I have no say in the matter whatsoever then this command, even where Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, is really an empty command because it simply means regardless of what you do, how you live, God is going to live the Christian life for you. That is antithetical to New Testament teaching. We are to present our bodies as living what? Sacrifices, holy, acceptable, pleasing unto God, for this is our just and spiritual worship. We are not to let the world squeeze us into its mold, but we are to be changed, as it were, daily by the renewing of our minds, conformed to Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, we are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. There are things for us to do that is not absent of grace, that's dependent upon grace, but yet he calls us to live in obedience to him. So here's the command, walk worthy. Keep step with Christ. Let the daily habits of your life as they once were in the world and pleased the world and lived unto self and for self-glory and self-edification and just to pleasure oneself upon the lusts and the patterns of our sin-sick hearts and depraved minds. He's saying now, work, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Let your life demonstrate the good news of the gospel the evidence, the fruit of a truly saved life. So it's interesting, the very first command the apostle gives us 
in Scripture, after three great chapters of profound truth and great indicative statements of the faith, is now he simply brings it to our daily life. Walk worthy. Walk worthy. Let your life walk worthy. You might say, Steve, I don't know if I've lived worthy. I don't know if I'm walking faithfully. Well, then I want to encourage you as a brother and sister in Christ this morning to not wait any longer. Repent while today is called today. Turn from your sin. Get your business right with God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself. Jesus even says in the Gospel of Luke, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then do not do what I command you to do? You see, there's the fruit of obedience. We must live new life in Christ. It is cheap grace to deem otherwise, isn't it? To think the Lord has saved me by his grace, but I can live any way I want to live. It doesn't matter. I have my fire assurance. I'm assured of eternal life in Jesus. How do you know? How do you know you're saved if there's not the fruit of daily obedience in Jesus? Now, you see, Proverbs says a righteous man falls seven times. The key there is righteous, meaning born again, saved, a new life. A righteous man may fall seven times, but a righteous man, Solomon says, also gets up seven times. A righteous man falls. We don't need help in that, do we? Uh, I, we all have PhDs in falling this morning. <laughs> We all have PhDs in sinning. We didn't have to learn that. We didn't have to become educated on that. We didn't have to go to the, to the leading schools of the day to learn how to sin. It comes natural to us. But only in salvation, he says, a righteous man may fall seven times, but here's repentance. A same righteous man gets up seven times. Faithfulness, obedience, new life, a walking worthy in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of the calling. This is the apostles' command to us here this morning. Galatians 4.12 says this, Brothers, I entreat you to become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Paul is speaking there to the liberty that Christians have within the faith, but when he says in Romans chapter 9, 1 to 3, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why was he burdened? He was burdened for his own countrymen, separated from Christ, that they would come to really know Jesus. He understood there just needs not to be only a confession of eternal life in Jesus Christ, but the living profession, the living example of what it means to know him. We've been called. In Romans 8, verse 30, Paul says this, and those whom he has predestined, that's marking out the boundary of the lies ahead of time, he has called. And to those whom he has called, he has justified. And those he has justified, he has glorified. Once you've been truly regenerated, you cannot be unregenerated. Once you've been justified, you can no longer be unjustified. 
Once you've been given the promise of eternal life, you can never be robbed of that promise. Jesus says in John 10, no one can snatch them out of my hand and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand who is greater than all. Some people say it this way, even though I don't like the language, once saved, always saved. Now that's true. If you're truly born again, you will be continually keeping on and enduring until the end, until you're home with Jesus. But a lot of people I know in the 70s and 80s, even in the latter part of the 60s, used to say, well, once saved, always saved, to justify their disobedience, not to encourage further obedience and grace. So you see, the apostle is calling an effectual call unto salvation. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers, Though not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many of you were more powerful or of more noble birth. He's even saying, even in that calling, there wasn't something unique or special to us. We were not, not as sinful as our neighbor, a little smarter than our neighbor. No, he called us with a calling that is effectual only by his grace. We sang it this morning, we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, of being home with him. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says, who saved us and called us, here it is, to a holy calling. He saved us, he called us, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, a holy calling. Character matters, life matters, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And again, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. There we see divine grace, divine sovereignty. He's He's elected us. He's chosen us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. But we are to see these characteristics in our lives ever increasing. Practice, diligence to make our calling and election sure. So in sanctification, it is God's grace. It is human obedience. In salvation, it is solely of grace. In glorification, it is solely of grace. But in the meantime, from the time that we're born again to the time we're called home, either by death or by the Lord's return, we have work to do, beloved, and it is to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? This is a very important thing. If we claim we're going to heaven, then we need to live like we're going there. Now, what are the characteristics of this worthy walk? Number two, we see there the command to walk worthy but what are the characteristics of that worthy walk? Let's go together to Ephesians chapter 4 and in verses 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul here gives five essentials for faithful Christian living. In other words, five attitudes on which walking worthy in the Lord's, in the Lord's call is predicated. Five wonderful characteristics that he gives us here as fruit of the gospel. Number one, let's look at these one by one. Number one is humility. Humility. I have a slide that I've tried to put up at definition here for you. 
Humility is a compound word that literally means to think or judge with lowliness. To think or judge with lowliness, and hence to have lowliness of mind, end quote. Taipena frisune, to literally think or judge with lowliness. It means to have a lowly view of who we are, not against God's creative power and image in our life, but it means to think lowly of ourselves in light of the loftiness of God. That's humility. Humility is having a right view of ourselves in light of the loftiness of God. It's what Isaiah encountered in Isaiah 6, isn't it? When he saw the sun lifted up and the train of his glory filled the temple, Isaiah, when he had a right view of, his, of the Savior, he had a right view of himself. And he said, Lord, woe is me. He pronounces eternal damnation upon his soul because now he has seen perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. The Lord, God himself, in pre-incarnate glory, lifted up and compared to that, he says, I, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And the angel had to bring a hot coal off the altar with those tongs and apply it to the most sensitive part of the human anatomy, the very lips of Isaiah, and it cauterized his sin. His sin was atoned for. And then he says, Isaiah, who am I going to get to go and tell of myself and my glory? He says, Lord, here am I. Send me. Why? Isaiah had a right view of himself, a right view of the Savior, a right view of, the, of his sin, and there a right view of what it meant to serve God. It means to think lowly of ourselves, have lowliness of mind. John Wesley, John Wesley observed that neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. That's true. They deemed humility as almost a sacrilege. They prided themselves in the sophist wisdom of, of the Greek philosophers of the day. But yet here we are told that to be a proud Greek or a proud Roman, though it was ignoble to them, cowardly even, but yet humility is tied to the nature and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you go with me to a couple of verses just to see this? Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. We see that humility is foundational for Christian living, Christian virtue. Christian obedience, and our example is always tied to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, a doulos. Literally, it means a slave. Taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look to humility, we don't look to another person. We look to the, to the very Godhead, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who came in the likeness and the form of a servant, of a slave, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Talk of humility. Here's our Lord humbling himself under the jeerings and mocking and, and as it were, the persecutions and the lacerations 
and the indignity of the cross of that Roman gymnast, that aspect of crucifixion, absolutely humiliating, but he humbled himself for our redemption. Beloved, if God in the person of Jesus Christ could leave the towering nature of heaven's thrones and come on, put on flesh and dwelt among us, becoming obedient to the, to the death of the cross, taking on the form of a slave, how much more should we put on humility? Paul says you want to live worthy of a, of a walk that's worthy in Christ. Let it begin with humility. Now we know humility can be definitely terribly elusive to those of us in Christ. You know, when someone says, you seem to be a humble person, as soon as you talk about your humbleness, it becomes pride, right? What was the old uh, Yogi Berra line? I'm proud of my humility. (laughs) You know, we have to understand what it is to take up a cross every day, to die to ourselves. And so here the arrogant pride does not stand well for the believer in Jesus Christ. James 4, 6 says this, He gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is pride? What is pride? I love this definition from one of the old Puritan brothers, William Gurnall, who has written the definitive book, A Christian in Complete Armor on Spiritual Warfare. And he said this, he says, pride is self contending with God for preeminence. Pride is self contending with God for preeminence. There's pride. There's pride. You see, we want to be humble. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But his haughty, but the haughty he knows from afar. You see, the Lord rejects those who are full of themselves, the prideful. Pride comes, we know, in many forms, in our abilities, our possessions, our education, our social status. And that's why Jeremiah chapter 9, he says, not, let, let not the mighty man boast of his strength, or let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or not, let, let not the wealthy man boast of his Wealth, but let he who boasts, boasts in this, that he knows me and understands me, the Lord. Brains, bodies, and bucks, we boast in those things, but we are to be conformed to Christ and to be humble before him. John the Baptist said it this way, he must increase, I must what? Decrease, that's humility. That's humility, John 3, 30. That's humility. So when we come to compare ourselves with some who are comparing themselves, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, they do so and without understanding. They want to measure themselves by their own goodness and compare themselves to others rather than to compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. So humility means a death to pride, but also humility involves Christ-likeness, Christ-awareness. 1 John 2, 6 says this, whoever says he abides in him, there's the permanent abiding, whoever claims to be in Christ ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Could it be any more clear, beloved? Humility involves Christ-likeness, Christ-awareness. 
And it also involves a God awareness as Isaiah had in Isaiah 6. So we are to walk as he walked. We are to not exalt ourselves, but we are to humble ourselves. Jesus said it this way in Luke 18, verses 13 and 14. He says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven and would beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's humility. He says, I tell you, the man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Remember the the publican, the Pharisee, pardon me, that came in and he says, thank God I'm not like that man over there. And he started to boast of his own goodness, his own religious works, his own righteousness. And Jesus says, ends with this stinging rebuke. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility. Humility. That's the first of the five qualities. Secondly, gentleness. Gentleness. Paul tells us here in these verses, if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, with all humility and gentleness. What does it mean to be gentle? Sometimes people think gentleness means a softness. A softness, an introvert, as it were. One who is soft-spoken. One who maybe never gets angry, never raises their voice, never is passionate, just kind of blends into the background. That's not what gentleness is. Here, a gentle demeanor doesn't mean in Scripture one who is soft. On the contrary, it's an aspect of strength. Look at this definition of gentleness. This is a lengthy one, and it'll be on the website, but look at this. What it means to be gentle is this. An obedient submissiveness to God in His will. An aspect of humility, gentle. Not my will, Lord, your will. Unwavering faith displayed in a gentle or gracious attitude in kind acts towards others who are hurting you. Have you had somebody wrong you lately? Have you had somebody come at you, gossip about you, trying to maliciously demean you, hurt you, wound you. A gentleness says it's literally unwavering faith, that means trust in God, displayed in gentle attitudes and kind acts towards others who are hurting you. Literally, it is doing good to those that are not doing good to you. Gentleness. A humble steadfastness. It's able to submit to injustice. What an amazing thing that is today. A submission to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment, but with this quality, free from hatred, malice, and revenge. We see this in countries around the world where people are being persecuted abjectly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment as our Lord did. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He raised not, Isaiah 42, his voice in the street. Gentle. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 1, I'm mindful of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. See, for us, it means not demanding our own way, even in 
the plight of injustice, disgrace, or maltreatment. It means that we're free from hatred, free from malice, meaning we're not going to repay in revenge. We're not going to get even. We can do good to those that hate, hate us. Pray for those which despitefully use us. We can love our enemy. That's the supernatural response to ill treatment, to someone marking you out to be persecuted because of your faith in Jesus Christ. They just have it at it. They want to have at it with you. They want to knock you down at every point. They will spread rumors. They will come at you. They will seek to demean you, put you down, get you fired, whatever the case may be. Rob you of any godly character whatsoever. Listen, the world hated Jesus. It will hate us. He's our example. We should not be surprised at this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3.12, will be persecuted. The issue is, when we're persecuted, do we want to go for revenge or are we going to be gentle? Gentle, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. The third characteristic, not only humility, lowliness of mind, gentleness, free from revenge, not repaying evil for evil, but also Patience. Patience. Oh, I love this word, makrathumia in the Greek. It literally means long-tempered, long-suffering, long-suffering. In other words, it's not quick to pull the trigger. Sometimes translated, long-suffering, long-tempered, patient. The patient person endures negative circumstances and never gives in to them. You carry on. You don't use someone else's sin or someone else's shortcomings in your life to justify your own. Patient, long-tempered, long-suffering, enduring negative circumstances, never giving in to them. This literally means one who is not fast to jump ship. One who stays in, in other words, a provocation until healing comes. That doesn't condone the sin, but it endures the negative circumstance. And it never gives in to that negative circumstance. This person's doing this, I'm going to sin also. I'm going to use it as a source of revenge, a source of hatred, a source of, of, of feeding my own oats while someone else is feeding theirs. No. We're not given that privilege. The worthy walk begins with humility, progresses to gentleness, is patient, long-suffering. And then Paul gives us a fourth characteristic here in Ephesians 4, 2 to 3. Love. Love. Humility, gentleness, patience, and then love. Notice the progression. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Love is probably the most watered-down word we could think of in our culture, isn't it? We could say to our moms today, Mom, I love you, and rightly so. And then we'll go out to lunch and say, Boy, I just loved that Burger King. 
Now listen, if you're taking your mom out to Burger King to celebrate her motherhood in your life, shame on you. Go there tomorrow. But today, do something wonderful for her. We can't say, Mom, I love you and I love Burger King all at the same breath, let alone to say that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love is a more powerful, profound word than just simply a kindly affection to it. Love, biblically, is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. It gives not on the basis that someone is acting lovely or doing lovable things. It simply demonstrates love because that's how God loves us. Again, Matthew 5, to love our enemies. To love our enemies. I put up a few reasons here on the screen above as to why we are to love the church. Why we are to love the church. Why do we love the people of God? I would just like to read them for you. And again, they'll be online later. But number one, we want to love other brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus Christ promised to build the church, right? Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. A Hebrew euphemism for death. He's, therefore, my commitment should be to it. I want to commit myself to a body of believers. I want to commit myself to being there day in and day out. Acts chapter 2, verses 39 to 47. Talk about the intimacy of fellowship and the breaking of bread and worship and welfare and witness within the body of Christ. Jesus Christ promised to build the church, therefore my commitment should be to it. Secondly, why do we love the church? Why do we love the brotherhood? Why is it demonstrative of our worthy walk in Christ? Number two, he purchased the church with his own precious blood. Therefore, listen to this, I love those for whom he died. I love those for whom he died. Whether they attend the cross church or another church, we love Christians because these are for whom Jesus died. He paid for their salvation, for our salvation, with his own precious blood. This is what 1 Peter 1.19, we have been bought, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with eternal things, his precious blood. His precious blood. Therefore, we are to love those for whom he died. Thirdly, the church is the predominant agency through which God's will is manifested on earth. Therefore, it is the community with whom I labor. Man, when I want to address a social ill in society, I'm not interested in pulling together every stripe of society to gain larger group of numbers so that we can go out and make a social moral stand against the maladies of our generation. No, I want to partner with other brothers and sisters in Christ to confront those same ills with the gospel. Why? Because then it's redemptive, not just social. I'm not interested in picketing people for living unholy lives. I'm interested in going to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord changes their heart, then that issue of the malady is gone in society. The power is the transforming work of the gospel, not social co-belligerent reform. So therefore, it's the community with whom I labor. I want to partner with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our joy. We labor to the point of exhaustion with those who love Jesus. 
It's the community with whom I labor. I want to minister to those in a lost and dying world, but I want to do so with those that love the Lord Jesus Christ. When I first became pastor here almost six years ago, and it was interesting, I got a call from a local church in the community, and they said, brother, we're having an ecumenical gathering. I knew what they meant by ecumenical. It means no doctrine, just bleeding hearts. That's the, my own translation. And I said, what doctrinal considerations are you doing about this? And they said, oh, no, man, this is, this is to finally unite people away from doctrine, unite people away from the gospel of Jesus. They literally told me, and I'm friends with this man to this day, but he says, Steve, Really, the Christian life, doctrine divides, we, Jesus unites. And I said, can I disagree with you passionately for a moment? Unsound doctrine divides, but sound doctrine should unite all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. If you're coming only under the auspices of the name of Jesus, then Mormons would be allowed. Then Muslims would be allowed. Then Jehovah's Witnesses would be allowed. Forget the gospel. What unites is the social ill rather than the gospel, which drives us to counteract those things in society with the transforming power of Jesus Christ. There's a difference, isn't there? Evangelical co-belligerence, I'm glad, has, has seen part of its last days. Evangelical leaders threatening politicians that if they don't vote the way that we want them to vote. We're going to vote them out of office. That is not what the body of Christ is for. Are we to make our voice known in the marketplace? Yes. Can we speak out against evil in society? Absolutely. Should we condemn evil where it exists? Yes. Should we go after it with everything in our being, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. We should not, in other words, be afraid to call an unholy religion based upon an unholy leader following an unholy book what it is, Islamic terrorism. We should not be silent when it comes to those evils in the world, but we do so, beloved, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, the Muslim is not our enemy, but our mission field. That's the difference. It is the community with whom we long to labor. Number four, we love the church. It's exemplary of our worthy walk because the church is the only expression of heaven on earth. Therefore, we daily grow together in conformity to the fullness of Christ. Do you realize that? As imperfect as we are, the church, universal, to be sure, Christians all over the globe, yes, but the church local, is the only earthly expression of heaven. Therefore, we daily grow together in conformity to the fullness of Christ. It's what drives us to be more like Jesus. Commitment, duty, conformity to the fullness of Christ, sanctification. Then lastly, number five. Oh, I love this. It's a sign of our worthy walk, and it's a sign of our victory in Jesus. Number five, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Death cannot come against the body of Christ. Therefore, in light, Paul says of 1 Corinthians 15, of our assured victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, our worship and toil is not in vain. What great hope we have. 
Listen, work done for the kingdom is never work done in vain. Giving financially to gospel-centered efforts within the body of Christ is never a dollar spent in vain. You may not know what Wall Street would do with your retirement fund, but it's always safe within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ if it's a gospel-centered church using those resources of God's people to do heavenly things. You see, we're new people. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. What's the last characteristic? This is, this is where all this must demonstrate it, brothers, is unity. Unity. It was read to us this morning in Psalm 133. It's good for brothers to dwell in unity. It's good for people of God to dwell in unity. Notice this. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and then eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. Peacemakers. Not battling each other all the time. Peaceful. Peaceful. This isn't quasi-existential peace that you'll find on the celebration of Earth Day gatherings around the globe. I was always fascinated in 1990. I think that was the first year of Earth Day celebration where Shirley MacLaine got up in front of a hillside of thousands of people and declared these profound words. She said, quote, I am God, end quote. Just so you're clarified on this, she's not. Listen, sitting in the form of a twisted pretzel with your hands out as such humming for hours on end doesn't produce unity. It produces not oneness. It produces numbness. That's the New Age movement. Disengage from the neck up and you're in, right? But see, you can have empathy for Mrs. McLean because it's what the serpent told Eve in the garden, eat of the fruit of the tree and you will not die. You shall become like God. It's the age-old lie of Satan. We're to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is a wonderful word in the Greek, spudazzo. Almost sounds Italian, doesn't it? Spadazzo, it means to be diligent. Basically, it means to make careful haste. Paul says when we're eager to maintain, he says, get on with it, man. Carefully, circumspectly, wisely, but don't waste a minute to maintain eagerly the unity of the Spirit. At the moment of our salvation, we are transformed, born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We are brought into, baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit into his body. Romans 8 says, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you have not Christ. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Unity, immediately, that's positional truth, in heaven, seated in the heavens, but in verse 13 of this same chapter of Ephesians, Paul says, until we all come to the unity of the faith, that's spiritual growth. There's a unity of faith, unity of, that means the faith, Christian doctrine, Christian theology, the gospel, all of that which 
espouses godliness and orthodoxy within Christianity to the nature and person of Jesus Christ. That we grow into, but instantly we have unity because of the Spirit of God. And Paul says, spadazzo, make careful haste. Get on protecting that unity. Think of the little things that could chip away against relationships in the church, relationships within the body of Christ. Don't let those things occur. One commentator describes this as a holy zeal that demands full dedication. Oh, I love that. Listen, this unity won't be guarded with half-hearted commitment. This unity will only be guarded with the full-on dedication that we see equipped by the works and means of grace within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we are. That's where we must be. Humility. Humility, gentleness, patience, love fosters unity within the body of Christ. By this shall all men know that you're mine, that you love one another. Not artificial unity, but one heart, one soul, one mind. Not doing anything, as Paul says in Philippians, out of selfish ambition, even considering other people's needs more important than ourselves. That's unity. Unity. No longer are we about ourselves, about fulfilling the demands of number one in our lives, of us, but we're happy to be the third person, God first, others second, ourselves last. That's the characteristics of the worthy walk. Lastly, lastly, the cause, the cause of this. So much of this is self-explanatory. Notice here in verses 4 to 6, the apostle says this, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, there's that word again, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. What's the cause of that worthy walk? Let's just look at these things. Three things he divides them out in Trinitarian form. Literally here, first of all, unity in the Spirit. Notice those first three characteristics. Unity in the Spirit. One body, one Spirit, one hope. The body of Christ. No longer Jew and Gentile. One, one body. It is Jesus himself. That is done by the regenerating work of one Spirit. And therefore we have one hope, a singular hope. This is the work again of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the work that we must have in our sanctification. Unity. Again, this is not an artificial unity. This is not a mechanical unity. But we are to preserve faithfully by walking faithfully according to Christ and his word, unity within the body of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, he really counteracts sectarianism. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, why? He says, I fed you with milk, but not solid food. You're not ready for it. Even now you are not ready, for you are, not, for you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 10 to 13, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. They're even using their dedication to Jesus as a source of division. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is, no way, Jose. That's not what we're about. We are to strive for unity. The bond of peace, the perfect bond of unity, which Paul calls it in Colossians 3.14. Here's the cause of the worthy walk. One body, one spirit, one hope in our calling. Number two, that's not only the unity of the spirit. Here it's the unity in the son. Notice the next three characteristics. Listen, there's one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not many lords. Our unity is not around anyone else within the church. It's on one faith, and that's the faith of the gospel. As Paul says in Galatians 1, if anyone has proclaimed to you a gospel different than what I've proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally judged, anathema, spending eternity in an everlasting hell in the flames of perdition. But we have one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, the gospel, one baptism, now, we were baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit into his body. But we also come to the waters of baptism. And we come to proclaim as a witness the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I've been lowered, as it were, into death, buried in depth, and then raised in newness of life. And immersion in baptism really gives a wonderful picture to that, doesn't it? It's one of the two sacraments ordained by Christ, buried with him in, in death, buried with him, as it were, in the water. As we go down into the water of baptism, when we're raised, resurrected in newness of life, it's a wonderful word picture of giving testimony to the gospel and the grace of God in our lives as being new people. He says there's only one Savior, there's only one gospel, there's only one baptism. And then lastly, we see Spirit, Christ, and Father. And notice here, one God and Father overall. One God and Father overall. That's the cause of the worthy walk. We've been regenerated by the Spirit. We've been redeemed by the Son. We've been chosen by God. Electing love, redeeming love, securing love. This is the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Folks, it matters how we live, doesn't it? Listen, character may be at bargain bin rates in Washington, D.C., but it means everything to the people of God. And again, not sinlessness, but faithfulness. Not sinlessness, but faithfulness. There's a wonderful story of this. It's out of the biography of George Whitfield. I've put it up on the church website. You can read this there. There was a man named Thorpe 
who was a bitter opponent of everything that was holy. Whitfield, you know, was the great pastor, theologian, and evangelist of the 1700s. But Thorpe and a group of his friends, all of them young, rebellious thugs, conspired together to mock and oppose George Whitfield's evangelistic ministry while Whitfield was preaching in Bristol, England. I've sung and ministered in Bristol many times. It was a source of great racism and riots in the, in the 90s. George Whitfield had severely crossed eyes. If you've ever seen a realistic likeness of him, these men, Thorpe's guys, used to refer to him as Dr. Squintum. Just mocked him. They called their little gang of critical thieves the Hellfire Club. They would follow Whitfield around and mock him. They disrupted meetings. They mocked him on the streets and public places and generally tried to make his ministry a, repro a reproach in their community. They had it out for Whitfield. Whitfield's preaching had made a deep and lasting impact in Bristol, and these young ruffians hated him for it. So, Whit so Thorpe got one of Whitfield's published sermons and took it to the local pub where the Hellfire Club was gathered to drink together while they were making burlesque of Whitfield. Thorpe was apparently pretty good at doing impressions, and according to historical note, he had all of Whitfield's mannerisms and gestures down pat. So he stood in the center of the pub on a table, he crossed his eyes and began to deliver a derisive rendition of one of Whitfield's sermons. But, but, in the middle of the sermon, while reading one of Whitfield's sermon, the word of God and the gospel so pierced Thorpe's heart that he suddenly stopped and he sat down, trembling and brokenhearted. Right then and there, he confessed the truth of the gospel and gave his heart to Christ. Isn't that tremendous? His aim was to taunt and ridicule, but the Lord converted him. The power of the Word of God penetrated his soul and cut to the heart. Listen to what happened to Thorpe. He became a preacher himself, quite an effective evangelist, became a dear friend of Whitfield and an associate of his because he knew well the power of the Word of God to penetrate hardened hearts. Hebrews 4 says the Word of God can penetrate dividing Asunder soul and spirit, joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It probes to the very deepest recesses of our hearts, no matter how hardened or how closed the heart may be. Scripture can do that. God can do that. But listen, he used Whitfield in all of his frailties, his physical handicap, to steadfastly go about the work of the gospel, to live godly to this generation so that even one of his greatest opponents, a wicked madman like Thorpe, would come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Beloved, walk worthy. Walk worthy of the manner that you've been called with humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity, seeing that we have one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one calling, one hope, one God and Father over all. 
That's the cause and the generosity of the gospel to us. He's taken us as fractured people and brought us into the unity of the body of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful for the work that you constantly do in our lives. You save us. You daily conform us to the image of Jesus. But yet, Lord, you use and call us to an obedient lifestyle, wholly acceptable, that which is pleasing unto you. And so, Father, we would ask here, even this morning, that we would renew our lives in you faithfully. Lord, none of us are sinless this morning. None of us are, are perfect. We haven't arrived at our sanctification in this life. That only is going to be when we are home with you in the presence of God, in the glorified state forever, will we shed this tent, this earthly body of sin, and will we live faithfully for you for all eternity. But Lord, in the meantime, you've given us the indwelling paracletos. You've given us the Holy Spirit, which fills our hearts and minds. You've given us the Word of God, which is able to sanctify us. And so, Lord, we would ask by your grace that we would live holy lives this week, faithful to you. And where we need to repent, may we turn quickly. May we confess it. For it is only by your grace that we may do this. Thank you, Father, for your redemption. Thank you for your sanctification in our lives. Strengthen us. Strengthen us, Lord, this day to be renewed by our minds, that we would set our minds on things above, that we would not entertain sin woefully in our lives, but that we would hide your word in our hearts so that we would not sin against you. Thank you, Lord, that when a righteous man falls, he may get up, he may get up as well by your restorative grace, as you did with Peter of old, as you did with Paul and others. Do it with us. Do it with us. You are our God and our Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.